0: I think working as an emergency vet for that length of time, you get really good at talking to people and counseling people through those difficult scenarios. I don't want to like sound too pray, love loving it, but it does like I think, I don't know, makes you like a nicer person.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gerardo Polly. And this oh, sorry. <laughs>
2: okay. Yeah, okay, 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 <laughs> okay. I'm I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is The Vet Vault. Welcome back. We've missed you too. We hope that you've been enjoying the occasional clinical episodes. And if you are and you want more short, sharp, super useful clinical podcasts, remember to check them out at vvn.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H. But we're back today with another full-length vet interview. And it's a corker if I can say so myself. We're exploring the ins and outs, the ups and downs and the joys and struggles of the career path that is close to my and Gerardo's hearts, Emergency Practice, with Dr. Lorna O'Dowd. You'll pick where Lorna qualified and cut her teeth in mixed practice from her lovely Irish accent. But since her early career in Ireland, Lorna has spent a stint of locoming in small leaps practice as well as volunteering in all sorts of exotic locations around the world. Until she finally put her roots down right here in Australia and followed a path that saw her working and teaching in the emergency department at the University of Melbourne for the past decade. At the time of recording this, she just started a new job in ECC in a private specialist clinic, which leads us straight into a great conversation about change, dealing with new jobs and teams, and the associated stresses. How to pick a team that fits with your values and how to add value to your team. We talk about imposter syndrome, burnout, being a good mentee, and death. A very important topic that we haven't really touched on before when our patients die with or without our help and how we deal with it. And of course we couldn't talk to a fellow ECC geek without asking her for her best tips on how to survive a career in emergency with shift work and high stress situations. We think you're going to love Lorna. I know we did. So let's get to it with Dr. Lorna O'Dowd. Hello Walters, and welcome back to another episode. Welcome Lorna O'Dowd to the podcast. We are thrilled to have you and
1: welcome Gerardo. Hey team.
0: Thanks very much for having me. I was um pretty chuffed when uh, you guys asked, except for when the day dawned this morning, and then I <laughs> felt pretty nervous.
2: <laughs> Nothing to be nervous about. If anybody's going to make a fool of himself, it'll be Gerardo. <laughs> I, I try not to, but it just happens. It just happens. <laughs> now we're thrilled to have you. You came highly recommended, and you know what we realized. We've, despite the fact that both Gerardo and I uh, have been working in emergency for a long time. We haven't actually interviewed an emergency vet. We haven't talked about emergency as a career.
0: Wow. I thought you'd be totally biased. Let's,
2: let's begin with you. I'd love to hear about your story and uh, your, your journey from Ireland to Australia and from mixed practice to emergency vet. But I want to start at the, at the end and we'll work our way back towards the beginning yeah. a little bit later. You've just started a new job. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I have indeed. So um, I just started at uh, South Falls, which are a clinic here in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm two weeks in and it's going pretty good. It was a um, big transition after nine years of my last job. So yeah, it's been, been a bit of a stressful time, but also been quite exciting. And the team there are really lovely. So thus far, all good with that
2: but still working in emergency is that right
0: yeah i guess primarily a surgery specialty practice but they're trying to um offer a broader range of services to their clients and a lot of the cases that they see though they might be surgical that can be quite complex mm-hmm. so we've had some. Much- adrenalectomies and septic abdomens and chest traumas so you know the kind of cases that do require a multidisciplinary approach so yeah my role there is ECC and we're kind of I guess expanding uh, that team or the hope is we're expanding that team.
1: So is that taking emergencies managing emergencies during the day triaging them and then maybe you know directing them towards medicine and surgery but then also managing the critical care unit or something like that is that what it looks like
0: so really it's not primary um or like first of any emergency that we're doing mm-hmm. it's more so that we do the critical care side of the cases that come that are complex cases like those during electives so for instance that need some management beforehand some stabilization and then post-operatively they can be a bit of a nightmare so that's where we come in, uh, manage those cases. But um, I mean, these guys are pretty good surgeons, uh, so you know that's uh, what they do. And then for us,
2: they leave, they leave you with, to clean up the mess. That's the problem.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but for honest, we like that. I mean, it is kind of fun.
2: Absolutely. Now, Lorna, you you said um, that it was it's been quite a stressful time. What about the process? Has have you found stressful? Is it just the the new job or yeah give, give me a bit of a background why why have you experienced it as stressful?
0: Um, I guess I guess change is always a bit stressful really isn't it you know no matter whether that change is a good change or or not you know so I think making the decision to leave a place that I loved was hard and that was stressful you know I made a lot of good friends along the way in in where I worked and I had a lot of great people around me and I was very comfortable after being there for nine years so (laughs) I think making that decision to leave was was hard and it was stressful and then I guess making sure that I found somewhere to go to that was a good fit Mm. I didn't want to make that change and then have to make the change again so making the decision and following your gut it's the right decision you know all of that was kind of stressful but i mean stress isn't always bad right some stress is good you know maybe helps you to go in the right direction i guess or makes you really focus on making that decision the right decision to some degree so yeah it was it was hard but a right decision i feel for me and so you grow with all of that change and that stress as well it's uh <laughs> hard to manage it in the moment but i guess you gotta trust that the journey is the right one that you're taking and for the right reasons and that ultimately the outcome will be what you want
1: mm yeah well the, that this was the that ted talk about perception of stress it was it's one of the most famous ted talks and it wasn't necessarily the stress itself or having stress it was the perception of stress and what it, what yeah, it meant yeah. if, if you yeah. thought stress was you know i didn't need this didn't want this well that kind of stuff that's super stressful right but then if this the if you thought the outcome would be that you were better um stronger more resilient more knowledgeable or something like that then Mm -hmm. the stress doesn't the perception of stress isn't less stressful
0: but having said that
1: you know emergency is pretty stressful kind of prepares you for quite a few things so I Um, I
0: guess it is but maybe like as emergency vets we don't find that stressful either you do maybe at the start but then you know it doesn't continue to be that same kind of stressful Mm. or roads away at you Mm. i i think at least anyhow you know i think other people maybe who come in they're like bleeding and out of it or when you start that it can be the kind of stress that's really impactful but i guess there's different kinds of stress and Mm. some people thrive on the emergency stress but then the life decisions in the day-to-day can be that kind of stress that's a bit toxic but yeah i guess it's how long you're you're undergoing that stress so changing a job was like a finite time you know
2: yeah, yeah yeah look it's a I've, our timing is pretty much exactly coincided i so i left my old job of 12 years so seven years in emergency uh-huh. there, and, and five years prior to that in the same practice and left pretty much well i left there in mid to june last year and then started two new jobs in the last month
0: uh-huh.
2: uh, So moved interstate so big decisions and then the two new yeah. jobs, and i was kind of blown away because, again, I've, I'm, I'm back in emergency again with one of the jobs. And I was shocked at how nervous I was. And you, you think, yeah, that, yeah. I'm, seriously, after eight years of emergency, and as you say, there's stress in emergency, but I think what it is is familiarity. So there's yeah. stress, but you have some degree of control because in your clinic that you've been in for 12 years, you don't realize that you know exactly where everything is. And so even when yeah. then things are falling apart, I know where to turn. To solve it, yeah. and suddenly you feel you feel a bit lost, and then the other thing that, right, so that I that I realized <laughs> I thought about it long and hard. I was like, "What?" The morning, sitting outside of the new job, sitting there, feeling really nervous, and I try to evaluate what am I scared of, and a lot of it is ego. Because cause now they suddenly have been like I just don't want to look like an idiot in front of these people. you know everybody knew me at my last job. I was a big shot there, proven myself and suddenly I' I'm the, I'm the new guy and you just don't want to And I, I I thought there was something wrong with me, but then I had a chat to a, a colleague who I really respect. We went for a run uh, during that time and he told me he had to go and do a shift. A solo night shift at at one of their businesses, and he hasn't done a solo consulting long, night shift in yeah. a very long time. And he said he was shitting himself. He was like, "Am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to stuff it up?" And I'm like, Dude, you're a specialist." And I felt so good to hear that that everybody put the put somebody out of their comfort zone, and suddenly, yeah, just your head's not right. You're just not quite there.
1: Um, <laughs> when you talked about you know, uh, you know, being concerned about being a fool. You've been running this podcast, mate. It's about fifty episodes where you're a fool. I'm sure they've heard it all already. (laughs) Uh, No,
2: but it's exactly it's exactly the first few episodes we did. I was very nervous, Uh, and then you get familiar, Mm. you start getting into comfort. But I thought I thought a lot, and let's get back to Lorna's opinion here. But I thought a lot about new grads during this process. Going, man, if I'm this scared, I've forgotten how scared I was as a as a recent graduate. It's very scary. Have, have you have you come up with any strategies through all of this? Any tips that you could give to people how to adapt to that new role and how to shake some of that stress?
0: Yeah, it's funny that you say that about a new grads because like if if we're stressed after how many years of working in these environments going into a new gym and then you take somebody who's never been in that position before it's amplified by a million, right? So it's... it's um, it's good to think in that way because obviously i've come from an environment where i thought a lot of students who are in their final year mm. and so i got asked that question a lot about going into jobs and what what was good advice and yeah you know, i think in truth like we all maybe suffer a little bit from like the imposter syndrome where we think we're not good enough and we're yeah like like you say, we're going to like be shown up as a complete fool, you know, and so you're willing to take whatever job is offered to you because you're like, oh, I can't believe you yeah. even offered me a job. <laughs> <laughs> i better take it before they figure out who they're dealing with. I think that's maybe where people go wrong. I took quite a bit of time in deciding on this job and um, not deciding really like in terms of the clinical side of things, whether or not I'd be a good fit because I think in truth as vets, we We're all pretty open to learning and upskilling and reskilling. And I I don't think that's a problem. I think for the most part, that generally excites us when we're learning new things. But I think being a good personal fit, like Mm -hmm. having the same kind of values and ethos and as the practice does in general, I think that's where the key is. Or at least for me, I think that's where the key is, because, you know, if you're kind of on a battle on a personal level, it's never going to work and you're not going to be happy there. You're going to be frustrated. uh, And I don't think it's a good, uh, a good for either for either involved so I spent a lot a lot of time thinking about that whether I was a good fit for them and then for me and I think going to the place was important for me, just absorbing the kind of atmosphere, you know, where were people kind of, you know, happy and, mm. you know, what was the the overall like feel. And I think some of it's intuition as well, because what works for somebody isn't necessarily going to work for another person, right? I think then trusting into your intuition that, that it is a good fit for you rather than, yeah, rushing in just because you feel like you're not, you know, you're not going to get another job. And I think new grads certainly. That's a big thing for them because they're so stressed about, about not getting the job. But I think your first job is, you know, pretty pivotal, pretty instrumental in kind of forming your relationship with veterinary as a whole. And so I, I would encourage, I guess, new grads to like take their time and make sure they're going somewhere that's supportive of new grads. With people who are willing to teach and to support them in the after hours period. Because otherwise, I think it's just so incredibly daunting and and, and can be an awful experience. Mm. I think like, my first job, I was so lucky, like so super lucky. One of the questions the student asked me when we, or, like, I did a student panel discussion with, with some new grads and they asked me about mentors and I didn't realise at the time that in my first job I had a mentor you know because like there just wasn't that name on the relationship Mm. but it was a guy in the another vet in the practice who he'd been a couple of years ahead of me in uni and we'd loosely been friends we had been on the same drinking team and a couple of things like that He kind of took me under under his wing when I went into the practice and took care of me and so so did the bosses as well they really took care of me but I think that was pretty pretty important you know to have a support network and to have people you can reach out to and to talk talk you through problems and the other thing about that practice is like though he was my mentor this other vet he he also became my best friend so he had a social outlet Because I think a lot of people do that when they start off vet. You know, you're so excited. You're finally realizing your dream and your passion and you give your all to it. And you're like, you stay and you scrub into all these surgeries and you do the extra calls and you do, you know, the extra hours. And then before you know it, you're a few years in and somebody asks you what hobbies you have and you realize you've got none Mm because you've totally lost yourself to the job, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's something else that's pretty important. Not lose your identity in amongst it all. Like you're a vet, yes, but you know, you should also have all these other outlets because I think you need them if if it's going to be a sustainable profession for you Mm.
1: there's so many things you said you just if you if you're not careful you start to think yourself in your head that everything about you is vet like so when you explain who are you I identify myself with my job my job is just how I you know earn money demonstrate value to the community share what I know with the world and so forth but it's a vehicle through which I can do things and do the things I want to do, but it doesn't actually Mm -hmm. mean that's who you are. And -hmm. then something will just make it their whole entire lives or get lost in Mm it. Um, Mm -hmm. And all of us do, like we totally do. Like I do as well. And and until you kind of realize that, Holy hell, there is, there's so many different aspects to me. I'm a father, I'm a partner. I'm a, like, I'm a cyclist, Mm -hmm. I'm a runner, whatever it is. (laughs) So literally you can pick whatever it is that you want to identify yourself with. So it's yeah, really important yeah. i think people don't really realize but, the importance of that
0: yeah i think in the early years especially right because yeah it's uh it's very all-consuming can be and it's only after you, you start to burn out that you realize <laughs> that that all-consuming nature of it is actually not healthy
2: so how do you stop that what are the, your strategies to actively prevent that from happening
0: um, I think yeah, trying to be mindful of the number of hours you work and the number of, like, overtime hours you're working and whether or not, you know, you're accepting all of these extra shifts and hours. I think sometimes we feel like to be a team player, you have to say yes to everything. And, you know, it's OK to actually say no, because there's no point going in if you're resentful that you're going in but you can't say no so I think that's one thing like and I think as a profession as a whole we're probably pretty bad at self-regulating ourselves Mm -hmm. and regulating breaks and the hours we work and I think it's quite widely accepted within our profession that we'll work overtime and so I think yeah be prepared to stand up and say no and to walk out the door and not feeling like you're a horrific person (laughs) letting everybody down you know um, that's one thing I guess
2: yeah I (laughs) I want to add to that in because I 100% agree with you but it is hard because Mm. by nature I think most vets are we want to please people we want to mm-hmm. help. So, if the boss or your coworker says, "Hey, can you can you do this? Do you mind staying back?" Uh, and especially when you're new, you want to look good. You want to you know or you want to show that you are. And, and uh, this literally happened to me in a new job recently, yeah. uh, where somebody said, "Can you do this extra shift?" And my first, re- I knew I couldn't for, for yeah. heaps of reasons. I physically could do it, but it would not be the right decision for me or my family. Yeah. But my, I opened my mouth to say, yeah, I could do it. And, and then I, st- I had to stop myself and go, no, no, you can't do this. This is a very bad idea. But I still, it was really hard for me to say, mm. N- no, you know what, I actually can't. And then watching their face be kind of surprised and disappointed. Yeah. Uh, and then feeling like a dickhead because I just. <laughs> uh, but my, I was thinking, man, I, I hope they don't feel like I'm a lazy slob. now. Right? But I justified it to myself. And I think this might be an important way for people to, to think about it. I might not be able to do this shift for you now, and you, my boss, might be disappointed now. But because I'm mindful of that and protecting my own well-being and protecting my relationships or my friendships or my hobbies, I'm the vet who's still going to be here five years later. I'm not going to be the vet Mm -hmm. who has to to quit the job because they can't put up with it because they burned out. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you Mm -hmm. need me five years down the line, I'll be here.
1: What, you, what you're saying there is essentially that you have to be aware of what it is that you need. And it's important to you. Yeah, absolutely. And because like number two, so of the, the top three things that new graduates wanted in the big server that wasn't done in the States, number one was support and mentorship. So I have something to say there because you talked about you're a mentor before, but number two was work-life balance. And mm-hmm. yeah. like, so You go to a boss and you go, "Oh, I want to make sure that I have work-life balance." They'd be like, "Cool," and like, "What does it even look like for you?" You know, everyone's work-life balance is different. I think that yeah, you know, what Hubert did was he identified that actually this is what it looks like for me, and Mm -hmm. he stood up for it. But some people don't understand what or know what it means. Yeah, Mm. for them, it looks like for them what it looks like for them.
0: I think everybody has to draw their own lines in the sand because like you could argue like with emergency that the hours are insane or they're crazy the back-to-back shifts but it depends on where you're at in your life if you want to work like you know four 12-hour shifts in a row and then have like five days off you know like you know that that can work for you so it just depends on whatever works for you. It is tough as well because you do want
2: to help out uh, and you and you should you should sometimes go above and beyond it's just not every time, all the time that somebody asks, because there is a trend and I see it on the business owners talking amongst each other saying, well, some of these young wets just have zero. They won't go any further than they'll just go, no. Um, And it it puts the rest of the team in in an awkward position. So I think there will be opportunities where if you can, don't be stubborn about it. Go, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll step up. I'll help out. But if it happens again and the third time it happens, Well, the fourth time you need to be able to say, well, something's wrong here. Either we need to change the management system or this isn't for me.
0: Yeah, it's being a team player, but you also can't be taken advantage of, you know? (laughs) Somebody's always asking you to stay late and work through your lunch and work every weekend. You know, that's, it's okay to say no to those things. (laughs) That's not really (laughs) fair.
1: I also think that it's, it's, from from a business-owner perspective, it really does come down to some degree. And this is you know, a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this, but <laughs> it comes down to planning, bench, but you've got bench planning, planning team, redundancy in your team, mm-hmm. finding enough staff. And it's like, there's no vets out there. No vets want to stay. If no vet wants to stay, maybe you look at what you're doing to provide just your, your mm-hmm. vets to stay or not stay, you know, mm-hmm. and it hurts when a vet leaves our practice because it takes two years to train a good emergency vet. Right. Mm -hmm. So so when they leave after two and a half years, we feel like there's a loss, but constantly we're we're planning like sometimes 12 months in advance. We have to plan now and start Mm -hmm. developing strategies and start putting the seeds Mm -hmm. and feelers out there. How are we going to get recruits at 12 months in advance? Mm -hmm. So to be able to make sure that people don't feel like as if they have to jump in and say, yes, because we, a lot of the burnout that we see is is because exactly what we talked about people jump in to help because they want to help the team get it. But then when they burn out as, as, a, as a business owner, it's not their fault. Right.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, If, if, if we planned better somehow, if we were, if we have better employees, if we had better systems to, to better support systems, then ideally our, our staff would stay for longer. So, so the, it took me a while to figure that out and Battered, system, like and now that the fact that I understand that now we look in 12 months in advance and developing support systems more than we ever did before, because back when I was in the plea, back when I was an emergency vet, it was literally, you just worked, 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 you know, 20 hour shifts, 22 hour shifts, whatever it was, just got, got the job done. And then bam, relationships break down. So, but you said something before, you said something before Lorna about mentor, right? And this was, I agree, like, because we, we, we might graduate at the same time, must be around the same time or whatever it was. But like a mentor support thing is really, in my mind, I only come out and has been this kind of, uh, you know, important thing in the last maybe what maybe five years, five, six years, I don't know. And they have never heard of it before. But before um... then, before <laughs> then, it was just like, you want to find support. And so you try and find a job, but, but like now everyone's trying to find their mentor, which I think is great and they definitely need to do because a mentor, a good mentor can fast track your journey. But then I I, I think there's a certain amount of onus on the mentee, on on the, the person who wants a mentor to find the right mentor for them and then communicate their expectations so that that mentor then knows that all of a sudden This person is looking to them for this stuff. It can provide for it, as opposed to you didn't mentor me and you're like, holy shit, like what (laughs) do you want for me for the last 12 months? No, you know, I thought I was providing support. No, but you wanted this, you know. So clarity for a mentor is what I would like to put back on the person who wanted a mentor. That makes sense. (laughs)
0: little bit
1: confusing mentor Mentor
0: or
1: mentee did you have a conversation with your colleague in the end and end up kind of clarifying Mm. well let's let's ask it this way so you've been
2: teaching students at the university of melbourne for your previous nine years or so is that right yeah you were were involved so you were the ultimate mentor what do you want from a good mentee uh like what does a good relationship look like to you what were the things that made you be your best as a mentor to those students
0: um yeah that's that's a good way to put it in truth unless people come to you and they're open and they're honest then you it's very hard to help them on their journey or help them figure out their way through whatever they're trying to navigate and so i guess that could be two ways because if you're not an approachable person or you're not open to that then you might deter people from coming forward but I think um, a lot of the students who and it wasn't always like in it was actually in general it was never in a formal setting it was often on the clinic floor as we chatted or they ch- chatted amongst themselves and I just put in mm. <laughs> you know and offer my advice but it was always those people I guess who who raised the subjects and raised their concerns and raised their worries that were the people like you feel like you could help the most and whether your advice did or it didn't like at least you could give some input so I guess that's one big thing I don't think I ever had anybody come to me and ask me to be their mentor specifically but I did have lots of great chats with people there, at least I thought were great <laughs> maybe they didn't think so i don't know but um uh, where you're just very open and you're honest with people you know sometimes like i guess you can try and like sugarcoat things and you want to say something to make things right but you know, that's not not the right approach always you know and so I think there has to be a, a good degree of honesty and that that could be hard for somebody who is in a more vulnerable position right you know somebody who um, might feel like they have more to lose from being honest you know because they might le- feel like they leave themselves open as uh I don't know not like if they're not passing their exams or if they're um you know not able to get a job or do interviews, then it's putting them to some degree it's exposing them. So it can be hard if you're that person the like trying to reach out mm. and ask people for advice. So it takes some bravery on their behalf. And then for those of us who are a bit longer in the profession, I think when you have people who are junior to you, I think it's just really important to be approachable and just to remember what it was like when you were at that stage.
1: I was talking to I remember Dan Markwalder. Dan Markwalder mm-hmm. from ages back. The big thing about his practice, and he's got how many practices now? Like Yeah, over, big big groups of break. Yeah, yeah. big groups of practices. And they have a very structured mentoring program where they actually marry up people and make you know to go hey this is your mentor mm-hmm. and we, we we've been doing that for the last year and a half and i think that's really helped with the transition so as an mm-hmm. employer maybe that's what it is that is required mm-hmm. it's like hey look this is
0: mm-hmm.
1: this is your mentee this is this is you're the mentee yeah. this is your yeah. you know <laughs> and we actually pay yeah. our vets our, our to do that
0: yeah wow yeah that's mm-hmm. pretty that's a pretty pretty cool idea for sure and then it, it probably puts a bit of onus on both people people or, you know, like to, to be that mentor that you should be, if you're actually assigned to that role rather than not knowing you're in that role, so to speak.
2: Mm. You talked a little about team fit and figuring out whether the, the new team was the fit for you, how you said you trust your gut, are there are there specific things that you looked for, or is it just through experience that you know what works for you? How do you figure out what's your right fit?
0: Um I think when, you know, I went there, everybody seemed like pretty happy and chatty and open. And I think that for me was quite it was a telltale sign, you know. And also when I went there, the bosses were there and on the floor and still it was happy and chatty and you know it had a nice feel so it just yeah it was a bit of a feel of being there and then i guess i talked a lot with the practice manager i guess is his role back and forth because they did take quite a while you know to make the decision and just you know everything in how he approached all of the conversations with me it felt felt like it very much aligned with how I feel or how I want to work in terms of what's important to me in work-life balance, but what's so important for me for you know, caring for the clients and caring for the patients. And so all of those things aligned and I never felt pressured at any stage. So there was a few different things along the way. And yeah, I I think taking a bit of time with the decision helped because then there was quite a few conversations and each of them had the same feel. And then at the end, it did come down to, I think, just a bit of trust in your gut. And I think we all probably don't do that enough. Yeah. And I don't know if my gut's any better now than it was like when I took my first job, because in truth, I really think that was why I chose my first job too. You know, I went there, they were all really lovely. They seemed to be exactly what they said on the tin and I trusted that and it worked out in my favor at that time too. How much
2: well I'm asking because you seem like a really warm, outgoing, pretty cheerful person and, and I think that counts a lot. How much do you think what you bring to the team actually contributes to that culture, to to the your workplace being the place you want to be
0: in? Oh, I guess yeah. Um, I guess yeah. It's a two-way street, you know. Like um, I might not be the right fit for every practice. That's for sure. I can be loud and <laughs> have a lot to say, <laughs> and uh, that certainly may not be the right fit for many places. And I'm okay with that, though. That's fine. It, it's definitely a two-way street.
2: Yeah, but what I what I meant was, uh, you. Th- I'm pretty sure you bring a really positive attitude and a very positive cheerful demeanor to your workplace, which (laughs) makes a big role if you what I suppose I'm trying to get to is if you walk into a workplace with with the right attitude and a I'm here and I want to I want to have fun and I want to work hard and I want to contribute to this team. Invariably, you lift the team around you. Conversely, you can drag it down. You could work into the best workplace with your shitty attitude. And a month later, suddenly it's not such a great workplace, and you wonder what the problem
1: is. (laughs) And it might be (laughs) that you're. I
2: I, I suppose I'm I'm asking it, and it gets back to that, the nerves of the first couple of days of a new workplace. My my solution for myself of how do I get over those nerves? Because I arrived at work and I went, well, I hope they don't do things too differently. So yesterday I started getting that imposter thing, and I had to set it in my mind to go, well, what can I definitely bring? I, yeah. I've got some skills yeah. for sure. And, and I know as a new yeah. grad, you you won't have all those clinical skills. I, I know I have some skills that I can bring, but what I can definitely bring and what even as a new grad you can bring is to say, I can bring positivity and I can I'm bring sure. bring yeah. energy. And if I walk in and there's that, you know, some days you walk in and people are down and you go, oh, you can cut the atmosphere and you go, I can change that. You actually have the power to, to change instead of you know, getting sucked in, you you change it. And you don't need to be experienced to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. I listened to another podcast actually called The Happiness Lab. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to a little bit about that, about emotional contagion. I'd never heard of it before, but when I heard it, Ah, I was like, "Ah, you know what? That makes perfect sense. You know, you walk into a room and, you know, if there's one happy person in there, then it's a bit infectious, right? Everybody Mm -hmm. is kind of into the mood. But on the converse Mm -hmm. of that, you walk into a room and, and one person walks in and they're thundering about and the door is slamming and yeah, you're sighing and everybody starts to be on tender hooks and yeah. it's not a nice place to be so I definitely think we all have a massive amount to contribute you know it doesn't mean we all have to bounce in the door no say, Good but... morning! You know, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, I do think that having a smile and having a positive attitude is 90% of the battle isn't it it's like I go back to I always think Everything else can be thought, like clinical Mm -hmm. skills can be Mm thought. but if you go in and you do try your best to just bring as much as you can in the way of your energy, I think that's pretty important. I
2: saw it at work. I was sitting at work once and I was watching it happen. I was watching a a single mood contaminate the whole work environment like that. Mm -hmm. And I had this mental picture of a tin of white paint and then you get a drop of black paint in there and you mix it in. Yeah. And it's no longer white paint and it just mm. spreads throughout that whole team. And just be careful that you're not
1: the discoloration of the team. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's exactly it. You kind of like when you when you paint the pictures, like what's it like when when someone comes through is cranky and mm-hmm. you're like, Oh, yeah. it's terrible, it's terrible. And then uh, yeah. you like that, and they are like, Oh am I, am I like that? I don't know. I, I am like that. Oh my god, I'm like that. But emotional changes like also it's emotion doesn't necessarily just manifest in like a happy smile and like a cheerful mood, it also also manifests in movement and energy. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you walk in with energy or you move around with energy. You know, I think that it's a hundred percent true. Like you can feel the mood and someone can really bring it down. And you know what? It's your responsibility. It's not the team. You know, you can't come to work no. and expect the team to lift your mood. How no. many shit they? I, like the team should help me feel better about it. Like, that's unfair, mm. really.
0: But you know, the other thing as well, I think like some people aren't as aware of themselves as maybe others are. And you know, we all can kind of shy, shy away from those conversations of that person who is like moody. You know, they may not be totally aware of the energy they're bringing, and we all kind of like just back out and back away and don't deal with it a bit. You know, like when I was at the uni, one of the things we had started to do was when we were teaching students, we would do face to face and kind of place scenarios out so that they themselves could become more self-aware and realise what they were putting out. Because I think learning that is a bit of a journey in and of itself, and I think a lot of people, when they do realise that, they're open to change. Mm. Um, not everyone. But.
1: <laughs> this, this, is, this is where you, this is where your open conversation with your mentor goes. Hey, how am I on the floor? <laughs> Honestly, tell me, well, actually, to be honest, you're a cranky bomb. <laughs> you know,
2: there's two very quick solutions on both sides of that coin. It takes a little bit of courage. The one is if you go to work and you are cranky, you don't always have to be bouncy and happy and cheerful. But I found it really works. And again, it comes, into, comes down to that self-awareness. But if you arrive at work and your kids have given you a hard time or you've had a fight with your partner or say so, walk in and say, hey, guys, I'm in a shitty mood.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If I'm cranky, it's not you. I'm having a tough time. You'll probably get a cup of coffee and a hug and you'll probably feel better immediately. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, if there is that un- unself-aware person to go to them with kindness and say, are you okay, mate? Because you're really not You're not your happy self. Are you? Is everything okay? And then suddenly they'll go, oh, shit, I'm showing it. And and it can yeah. for the right sort of, for most people, will will take that as a, as a, oh, yes, and they'll tell you and everything ticks along a bit better after that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, we're always often afraid, isn't it, to say like what's really going on? Mm. You know, you put on a front and you think you're deceiving everybody, but actually you're not.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're terrible. Our, our body language just shouts it out, isn't it? <laughs>
0: totally, right?
2: <laughs> you know those conversations that you have at conferences back in the days when we still had big vet conferences, when people are chatting to the lecturers and asking questions, and you hear things like This isn't really in the books, but here's what I think. It's in those kinds of conversations that the best nuggets of wisdom appear. The nitty-gritty real-life details that you can only get from years and years of experience. And it's exactly those kinds of conversations that we try to emulate on the VetVault Clinical Podcasts. We don't want lectures. We want to hear about the challenges, the tips, the stuff-ups, the this-is-how-I-do-it. Go to vvn.supercast.net to join in the conversation. Okay, where to next? Let's talk about emergency as a career. How? Tell us your story. Because uh, you, you qualified and then you did mixed work in, in Ireland. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I started off doing... So, yeah, my kind of journey to ECC was a bit, a bit all over the shop, <laughs> Probably like a night in emergency. But uh, I started off in large animal practice. And huh. um, I th- think uh, one of the reasons I kind of fell into that is... Uh, because my teachers in Dublin were just on the east side were really good fun and really approachable and friendly and it was what we would have called a safe learning environment you know mm-hmm. you didn't you weren't made to feel like a complete imbecile if you asked questions so i think i was quite drawn to learning because of that not necessarily because i had superior skills or ability <laughs> in that area <laughs> yeah so that's where I started off and um, after a while I like, did kind of realize that it probably wasn't for me <laughs> as I was rolling around in the muck with like <laughs> trying to put back in uteruses that were bigger than me <laughs> that was maybe uh yeah probably not the path I should have chosen but um kind of st- my dalliance with small animals started with June charity trips Oh. so um after a couple of years out a friend of mine actually suggested going to peru i thought sounds like a lot of fun so she was an emergency vet actually and we went off there together to do a spain user campaign and that was kind of my first alliance at Swali's, and i kind of flitted back and forth between doing largies and charity work for a few years and then when i moved to australia i ended up in small animal practice and mm-hmm. again i kind of fell into it i went to visit a friend and then got offered a job at her christmas party <laughs> um, there were quite a few wines on board um and
2: so there's the ads of everybody saying they can't find vets that's how you get that's how you do it you get them drunk make them sign the contract <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's called Shanghai. <laughs> it
0: was funny because I was like, yeah, okay, you know, I'll give it a go. I'll stay for a few months or six months or something, you know, and then, then a year later, I'm still there. And I, I feel like I was totally underqualified for that job as well to some degree because I'd never really done small animal clinics before. And then the next thing you know, they were making me so charge. I was like, what? <laughs> but they were really nice and supportive. So yeah, I ended up being there for a year. And what I found during that year was, Like all of the cases that I really enjoyed were all the snakes and the ticks and the trauma, like all these pigging dogs that you got called to at three in the morning because they'd had, you know, like been speared through the side. So it kind of got me started, like started getting me thinking about emergency. And a friend of a friend had worked down in Melbourne Uni. And so they encouraged me to apply or to reach out to those guys. And I actually sent my CV to them when there was no job available. And it just kind of happened that shortly after I did that, a job came up. Maybe by mm-hmm. virtue of yeah. them not having advertised for <laughs> for that long. or I ended up um, getting the job. And I was a bit shocked, really, to be honest, because I had no emergency experience. So... Kind of landing a job in the uni, I felt like, <laughs> what have I done? I'm out of my out of my depth applying. <laughs> but I was pretty steep learning curve for the first couple of years. Was exciting, but yeah, it was pretty tough. So, so um, what was the role? But... Were you
2: were you teaching straight away, or were you just a consulting vet then? <laughs> I did just- no,
0: so the, the role was a clinical tutor, I was part of a pretty big team and, you know, they, they've been doing emergency for quite a long time. So it was a well-established part of the clinic. So you weren't just kind of thrown to the lions, you know, here you go, work the nights by yourselves. They wouldn't do that because obviously that wouldn't be good for them, for you or for the clients, for the patients or anything like that. So I had a lot of support when I started there. There was a lot of emergency vets there and they had a pretty good facility. So I started as a clinical tutor. And then gradually, as I like built up my confidence, you know, you, you got involved in more teaching, and as time went on, you kind of take on more roles. So yeah, it kind of it transitioned gradually. Like towards the end, yeah, I was taking on more teaching responsibilities, which was yeah really fun. It was. I didn't actually go into the job, even though it was a university, I didn't really think about the teaching element, element of it. Funny enough, you know, he might find mad, but I actually hadn't thought about that. But then when I got into the job, I realized that actually that was the thing that or one of the things that I really absolutely loved about it and probably kept me there for as long as it did. It was a really, really rewarding part of it. So, you know, the emergency side was great and and I definitely loved all the cases, but in the end I probably, the bit I maybe liked the most was, was the teaching side of it.
1: Yeah. I love teaching. I like having an impact on, mm-hmm. on students and, also sharing stuff in an engaging and energetic way which makes them kind of love the stuff that you love when they come to the clinic at least uh, for us because now we uh, run the emergency rotation for one of the universities in our state when they're there like our our vets on they're on on, i would say they're on their a-game because well
0: that's it you know you're constantly being questioned and asked and not in a bad way They're, they're thinking of questions that you could never have thought of and so you kind of uncovers all the gaps in your knowledge you know and so that's that's a really good part of it it keeps you on your toes and mm. it's just fun as well having that energy around
1: so you've been an emergency veterinarian for gosh almost a decade right same with me <laughs> i'd love to hear what and hubert what did. Hubert already done did you probably done for three decades um but uh, what would what would what do you feel what do you think would be the downsides of emergency and critical care
0: Yeah, what would be the downsides? um It's funny because, you know, in some ways the ups and the downs are not too dissimilar, right? Because, like, you could argue that the downs are the, the hours that you work, you know, the nights, the weekends, the long shifts. But on the flip side of that, you could actually work a number of long shifts in a row and then have a bunch of time off, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's like a pro and a con within the mm-hmm. same, you know, umbrella. And then, like, working the nights, I mean, after a while they definitely become pretty exhausting and less fun than all of the other shifts but on the flip side of that they're kind of the makings of you as well because when you're there by yourself at night you have to make decisions you don't have that time like oh i'll just wait for six to twelve hours and somebody else comes in they're not the type of cases that you you can't make decisions you know otherwise you'd be repentant at your leisure right so i think even though they're tough they're are really pretty instrumental in, in making you stand on your own two feet and develop a lot of those decision-making skills so I mean they're, they're a pro a con hundreds of the same kind of in the same way and I think that's the same about the cases too right because often the cases are really intense and they're really complicated and they're come with owners who just have had like their world fall apart you know their dog's just been hit by a car and it's like incredibly emotional and hard for them but on the flip side of that they're the cases that you can really make such a difference to and I think working as an emergency vet for that length of time you get really good at talking to people and counselling people through those difficult scenarios I don't want to like sound too pray love in it but it does like I think I don't know makes you like a nicer person but it does get exhausting that after a while, because all of those conversations with people who are upset, it's, mm. you know, it's hard. And then I guess the money side of it with emergency is another big thing that's hard, because people mm. don't plan for emergencies.
2: Yeah.
0: It's not yeah. like everybody has an extra 10, 20 grand sitting around in their bank account that they're just waiting to spend on their animals. Mm. So you do see a lot of euthanasia in it as well. And that that can be really hard, especially when it's financial. That it takes its emotional toll on you, I think, for sure.
2: It's, uh, I, I like that. I like a lot what you said there. It is exactly, it's the yin and yang. The the good stuff, the bad stuff, it just depends how you look at it and depends how much of it you're getting. And, mm-hmm. in, in, in the right dose, it's excellent. And too much, it's it's too much. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's and exactly I really, I, I really like that what you said about it. It can make you a nice person. I'm going to go either way. You can go, <laughs> I, I thought of it the other day, you can, you it's gonna make you grow you're either gonna grow wise or you're gonna grow bitter and you've got to decide which is going to be because you get yeah it's exactly what you say you you see people at their worst
0: yeah
1: that comes down to the culture the, your mentors as well because then they will they will catch they will catch it right mm. that, that will that will you, you go oh, this client was an asshole, right mm-hmm. and and they're like, you know what? I get it, right? They're, they're hard, they're difficult. But you know, no one plans for emergencies. Yeah. No no one wants to be here at one o'clock in the morning on a Sunday or Saturday night,
2: they should have brought this in two days ago, I mean, a stupid fucking night. And then you make yourself really upset. Yeah. And you're angry at the world and people suck. And then you flip it around, or I flip I've started flipping it around. And I go, well, they didn't bring it in two days ago, because they didn't know they don't mm-hmm. have the knowledge that I have. Well- or they- Scared, they didn't want to come in because they were yeah. scared of what you're gonna hear, uh, and now they yeah. hear it and they feel stupid. And you don't need to make them feel any more stupid. You just need to help them. Oh yeah, no,
0: I,
1: yeah. here's the point. I don't even yeah. think of that anymore. I'm just like, okay, here it is now. How? What am I gonna do? Because yeah. I used to think about it all yeah. the time. Why didn't the us And it's like I sort of just cut the question out of yeah. my head. Yeah, they even ask the question. Yeah, before now. It
0: just makes you frustrated, you know. But but the truth is, like what you just said, it's it's true. Like you're expecting people to have that level of knowledge that you have. Like you know, I have a lot of friends who've got pets, and they're smart people, mm-hmm. but they don't always know what's going on or what's happening and then they talk to you and you're like oh yeah yeah you gotta like you got we gotta get this sorted get them in and you know then they're totally panicked and they're like oh yeah no one you know so you know it's 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 hard to know those things sometimes as an owner and then owners are always afraid of being like overreactive right like i don't i don't want to be wasting your time it's hard to know always when exactly that moment you should bring something in and the truth is like how often do people roll their eyes if something comes in and there's no problem with it Uh,
1: flipping the question we asked before which was around sort of what was it it was a downside okay, okay okay what do you think what do you think then would be like your top three four tips for surviving in emergency
2: oh nice one gerardo
1: sometimes it comes out i didn't
2: it? even write that question gerardo just made it up- <laughs> <laughs> that's right i have no original
1: questions all i am of a puppet for hubert the mastermind <laughs>
0: um what would be the tip gosh now let me think you put me on the spot um so I think uh some of the tips I guess are uh, by virtue of being in a workplace that was supportive and had uh a lot of support staff around I think I got lucky in that respect because I didn't even know that it was a tip per se so I think when you have a bit of support that's hugely instrumental to being able to survive. And if you're thrown into the deep and you're there by yourself and you're trying to manage like really critical cases and you don't have enough people around, then I don't think you're ever going to be able to sustain that. So I guess finding, you know, a place whereby if you're going to be managing really difficult cases that there's support available to do that and that there's enough staff to work those hours that you have the kind of facilities required to to manage those cases because otherwise you probably shouldn't be in that position where you're where you're doing that and then I guess knowing how to manage your hours and what what you can do and what you can't do because I think like and and figuring that out I guess before you accept a job like if if their plan is you do seven nights in a row but you know that you're not able to do that I I think embarking upon that is just insanity uh, for you and for everybody else around you because you're you will then be that nightmare person to work with you know and so for me coming towards the end I knew that three nights in a row for me was max I was exhausted by the end of that and it wasn't initially how I was at the start but it definitely was how I was at the end. I've stopped doing night shifts now. So I knew what my own limits were in terms of my hours. And so I think you've got to be really clear about that and not try and overstretch yourself when you're doing those kind of intense, long hours. And because, yeah, it will be your downfall ultimately. So I think that's another big one. I think the other thing about emergency and critical care is I think we're all like, Really busy always trying to upskill in our clinical stuff. We're always doing courses and CPD. And I think we sometimes forget about the other side of it, like the non clinical skills, you know, being emotionally resilient and learning how to deal with all of the traumatic cases. And I mean that more from the sadness that can be part of emergency critical care and, you know, the clients that can be difficult, whether or not they're difficult just because they're difficult or whether or not they're difficult because they're going through emotional turmoil. Like learning how to deal with all of that, I think is so incredibly important. I think you can sit down and you can read things and you can try and do courses on it. And you can also think like for me reaching out to some of the other vets that I worked with and trying to figure out how they deal with all of that stuff and talking about it. I think that's pretty important as well, you know? And maybe that's not just emergency critical care, maybe that's veterinary as a whole. I think that's something that's pretty, pretty important.
2: Wow so you you talk about sleep, and we talk about the number of shifts and all of that to me, I personally think that's the end of that's the thing that's going to be the end of an emergency career is is the lack of sleep there's ways of coping with it, but I think eventually it it adds up but while you're in it yeah and I, and I love asking other emergency vets this because I had my strategies, but what were your strategies for surviving with the disrupted sleep patterns of night shifts. How did you, like, what did your typical run look like? How did you cope? What did your morning look like after shift? When did you sleep? Yeah. Did you have things that that you found worked for you?
0: <laughs> I didn't have mornings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not a morning person while I was an emergency vet. Um, whether I'll ever be, I'm not sure. But um, I, think, um, I think the longer I was an emergency vet, the more time I invested in trying to figure out what I should and shouldn't be doing I think at the outset I was always cutting corners I was like <laughs> coming off a row of nights and then like sleeping for a few hours and then getting up and you know trying to be functional and yeah. so I was always trying to figure out where I could cut corners <laughs> and shave off sleep but I think then when I was in the career a few years I figured out that probably wasn't that healthy yeah. um, and so then I started to I guess I like read about shift work and how to manage it and trying to figure out Even things like how you eat during your shifts can be Mm. impactful on how you survive shift work. So if like you read some of the things about sleep and sleep studies, they talk a lot about ways to manage it. And so I think the thing that I learned from a lot of the reading I did was stop. Um, depriving yourself of sleep you know I used to joke around and be like oh I just borrowed from the sleep bank I'm going to pay it back later you know <laughs> no problem <laughs> you know? and then people would be like that's not a real thing Lorda. <laughs> you know go to bed yeah I, I, <laughs> used,
1: I used to think sleep was the enemy until Alex's <laughs> phrase is like don't think sleep is the enemy I was like oh, I could do so much if I didn't sleep enough please. yeah I used so. to think
0: you know yeah surviving on no sleep was like yeah you're a hero you know you're a hero but I- right. you're a hero
1: <laughs> I remember doing this twenty-two hours shift, coming back four hours later, and then doing another like what was it, fourteen hours, and and I came back and it was and I almost came back because of ego. Like
0: yeah, here he is yeah. coming
1: back and he's doing it again. Yeah, it wasn't four hours. Maybe it was like the minimum turnaround it was like five hours and I was back again.
0: Yeah,
1: and. And I did. I did. No one any favors coming back <laughs> after that.
0: <laughs> it is crazy. I saw like yeah, emergency vets come off their shifts and then just not sleep that day, you know, and stay up the whole day and then go to bed that night. I mean, I would have been like an absolute zombie. But yeah, I stopped. Some of the things I did was, you know, I would like have blackout blinds make sure it was going to be as quiet as it could be and just dedicate those 6 to 7 or whatever they may be hours to sleep and not plan things not say yeah I was going to commit to x y or z on the run of shifts I was working just commit to sleeping and see that as equally important as everything else that you were doing you know mm-hmm. so I was a bit of a change in mindset I think a few years in and figuring out that it wasn't a wise move to not take care of yourself, you know. Um.
1: From an employer perspective, the, the, the only thing that I would add here is that the, one of the common reasons why our vets decide to leave outside of sleep and health, because they would just have chronic health issues after a while mm-hmm. if they couldn't sleep, would be a loss of social network. Hmm. because they didn't
0: mm-hmm.
1: work working saturday sunday nights friday saturday sunday nights because generally the busiest time in emergency hospitals they just slowly start to disconnect from their friends and they feel it they feel it, especially yeah. young vets they feel it yeah all the vets seem to be like oh, okay you know i'll catch up when i want to catch up with them but they're more proactive around it but younger younger guys mm-hmm. slowly start like they don't get invited to places they don't get invited to parties and all that kind of I stuff i never had
0: that problem i was invited to right <laughs> maybe
1: that was just you, eh? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Fine. I never got invited to invite parties. And that was the reason why. <laughs> I know, uh, that's definitely a thing. But don't you find then, though, that like you end up hanging out with all the emergency team? You're always yeah. like figuring out who's off when they're off because you're always off in the weird and wonderful times when nobody else is. So I have to say, like, due to emergency, I met some great buddies because, you know, nobody else is off. So maybe we were there great by virtue of just being the only people available. <laughs> But that, that's a strategy that's a
1: strategy to survive emergencies you you, re, you you know re-establish new friendship circles but some people don't they just can see what they've lost and then maybe they
0: just didn't like you jorda
1: <laughs> oh, I, I like Lorna. i think we should make Lorna a
2: permanent co-host I, uh... I want you to edit that out here that that's that's a co-host request
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, but you know that's like another thing about doing the nights that I find as well you kind of feel like you're in the trenches with the people that yeah, you're working 100%. with so you do develop some pretty close bonds don't you mm-hmm. so you, you kind of are eager to see them outside of work you know sometimes it's bad because you talk about work a lot but it's a way to diffuse too. Mm-hmm. you know so yeah, I used to find that that yeah you'd be you'd be so keen to catch up with those people you did the nights with because you're like yeah we survived we did it together
2: <laughs> that's true I feel like oh everything you say sounds so familiar that's that's pattern of, I'm invincible. I don't need to sleep. I can do this, and then the slow learning, and then by the time you learn all of it, you go, oh, I'm burnt out. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I, I feel like we we're talking about this, and, and the newcomers to emergency probably won't listen. They have to you have to learn it the hard way. <laughs> but if anybody's listening and going to do anything, you are not invincible. You do need sleep. And the sooner you learn it, the longer you're gonna last.
0: I think I terrified one of the interns at our practice the other day who I You know. Uh, you know stats from shift workers and the reduced survival like longevity Longevity, <laughs> yeah he was <laughs> like what what i'm gonna die sooner and i was like
1: definitely so You're die talk tomorrow. at
0: the end of the internship I <laughs> was i thinking well,
2: the reality there is there's a study i think from somewhere in the the scandinavian countries they classify shift work as a carcinogen on a par with cigarette yes. smoke
0: yes Yes. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I read that and I don't think I was the better of reading that for probably a good, you know, six months because I was anxious about it and thinking yeah, yeah, about it a lot. Yeah. I, I think I helped my game at that stage a lot in terms of how I took care of myself.
2: Mm. No, no the, the great thing about a podcast is I can, I can Google stalk people and it's not, <laughs> and it's not creepy at all. It's my job. <laughs> Tell us about, do you, I'm sure you remember Winston.
0: Uh, Oh, my God. (laughs) Do I remember? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that was pretty incredible. That was pretty incredible. Yeah. He was a little dog that came in one night to us when we were at the uni and he presented dead on arrival. And so it was one of those where, you know, it was like, I think it was a Sunday night and everything was under control. It was maybe around two or three in the morning. So all the patients were kind of sleeping. Everybody was on top of their treatments, and it was nice and blissful and peaceful. And then the next thing you know, we saw this car speed in because we've got cameras, and we can watch the cameras from from the emergency room. And we saw. We just knew immediately the the panic that was about to ensue. This like lady jumped from the car and she rushed to the door and was banging, banging, banging on the door. And we were lucky enough to have a security guard who is pretty invested in all the patients and pretty happy to help out, like with anything and with everything. And so rather than waiting for one of us to come up, he just instinctively knew it was really bad. He just took the little dog and ran down to us in the emergency room. And so... um it was dead on arrival you know that sinking feeling when Mm. you get get this little patient and that their people are just so distraught but you're like oh gosh he's dead obviously you start cpr immediately Mm -hmm. but you just you know you you just you think it's never going to work you kind of kind of
2: think you're wasting your time
0: yeah, I guess you have you know so many CPRs in emergency that law of averages comes into play, and unfortunately most of them you can't resuscitate. We started doing a resus and there was myself and two nurses there, so we were pretty lucky in that respect because I don't think you can really do a successful resus unless you have that number of people at a minimum. So we worked on him for yeah, I guess I don't know because time goes you know kind of fast and slow in those moments, but you know it, it probably was like somewhere in the region of five to ten minutes we were doing CPR and one of the nurses was watching the end title and you know was watching it creep up and then she was like watching the ECG and she was like saying to me Lorna I think we're getting him back and I was saying you know, don't <laughs> be silly. You know, come Have on you do this <laughs> like keep, keep, keep your you know like <laughs> we gotta keep doing this and then she was like no really no really you know and so you know then I'm feeling for a pulse and then you can feel this pulse and you can hear the heart it's not just like you know, dissociated electrical activity. And yeah, lo and behold, we got this little guy back and it was pretty, pretty special. So, um, remember when we got him back again, like, you're, you're the ultimate pessimist is an emergency bed. Uh-huh. Because I was like, I better go get his people fast because you could arrest again. <laughs> and then he <laughs> so like, ran down the corridor and I was like, come and see him. He's alive now, but just I couldn't for you, you know, he couldn't. I'll die again, you know, so. Um, and then the next thing, you know, he was like lifted his head and yeah, he made a full recovery. It was just, yeah, I felt like, I felt like completely like delirious and elated. I think we all did, you know, and. Um, so um, what what yeah, actually was, happened to him? How, why did he die? So, well, yeah, so it was, it was, yeah. Um, his folks had gotten up in the middle of the night, and it was actually quite sad because they had to go to the hospital because their um, granddad had passed away. And they got up, and their little dog woke up, and so they fed him a treat, and he oh. choked on it. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so yeah, just like a healthy, lovely little guy. And then the next thing you know, it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty, pretty special. I think you know, I was walking on on, on clouds for quite a while after that. Awesome. I think that's it's it's a big draw isn't it with emergency like those you know type of cases I mean if if we hadn't gotten them back then you know they're the ones that are so incredibly sad but gosh when you do that's a pretty it's a feeling that's hard to match right <sighs> Very much so. very that's, much so I don't think
2: I've ever had one like that that's why I had to tell that story it's actually I read that I was like all right i'm going to start i want to start trying harder again don't be <laughs> teach you how to do
0: cpr hubert <laughs> well it does it reinstills your faith in it, yeah, you know because yeah. um, you do get a bit disheartened right yeah. sometimes
1: you
2: know yeah i love those stories uh, i could chat all night i think this it's possibly great... the longest podcast we've got. I, I, i've got about five more questions I I, I I wanted to talk about i was going to talk about death and and dealing with death of patients uh Again, because of a, because of, I th- thought I had the other night. I I realized. And tell me if this is just me, <laughs> but I think as as you get better and you get more skilled at at saving complicated patients, I you start getting this attitude of nobody's gonna die on my shift unless unless I decide you're gonna die. <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know, if we're gonna you can, you can die because I euthanize you. Um, yeah, because the die, but know. otherwise you're not fucking dying until my shift is <laughs> over. <laughs> and it's almost an ego thing. I, 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 I found it was, I was like, that's not right really. But if it, if it has to go, I, I, don't, I don't know. know.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, don't
1: know. I can, that can make sense because I, I don't remember the last patient that actually passed away, died without, Actually, you without think. your consent, without, without <laughs> point, uh, <or> recommendation, <laughs> but like finding a patient dead I better
0: not say anything against that then. No, I've never had it happen to me either. No, no, no.
2: That did make me think there was something else that happened at another job where another vet said something about helping out at a wildlife hospital. And there's obviously a fairly high euthanasia rate. And one of the vets said it can get some vets down the the euthanasia. Mm which made me think a bit about it. And I said, weirdly, it didn't really bother me. I I, I just I feel like, well, to to me, to me, a patient dying because it's dying, because there's something seriously wrong, isn't it's not such a big deal for me. I think a lot of vets take it almost personally. And I go, no, well, look, we're all going to die. All of our patients are going to die eventually Um, if it's for the right reasons. I don't find it all that depressing. Uh, and I don't know if it is a point worth bringing up. If there are young vets out there who still struggle with it, who who find it a hard thing to deal with, is it? Are you at peace with it, both of you?
0: Um, hmm, I think yeah. I think it depends on a lot of things. I think it depends on the cause of why you're euthanizing something and how heavily you become invested with people and the patient I give like you've been working on a case for days and days and you're like so emotionally involved with those people as well they're the euthanasias that I find really hard because you just got it for them as well you know mm-hmm. I think we have these sick patients and we have such high hopes for them and we're really you know trying to do everything you can to save them and so when you do lose one it's it's it can be emotionally hard i do also accept that death is part of life and you know we do our best and sometimes that's just that's it's not enough and that's true for people and for animals right so i think you do have to make peace with that as well and learn how to accept it and learn how to move on from it learn from it but move on from it you know um because i think if you if you're constantly replaying it in your mind I think that's still very destructive and then there's euthanasia, where you euthanize older patients that have multiple terminal chronic issues and they're suffering and For me I totally accept that. I think that it's something that actually is quite important that we can offer our patients to give them a peaceful passing. I think if you can end suffering after an animal's had a beautiful life with loving people then I I truly do think that's a gift at the end and then I guess there's the other euthanasias where you know there are animals that you don't want to euthanize like um, in terms of people don't have enough money to to treat their pets and, you know, it, that can be gut wrenching. So I don't know if, um, like I'll ever probably be at peace with that. Uh, I find, I find it hard. I, I think you do again, have to learn how to accept it, right. And learn how to accept that, um, you know, you know sometimes people are making decisions between you know feeding their kids and treating their pets and and that's like it's not not often a you know it's not a choice that they want to be making so I guess you have to accept it in that round but you know they can they can be hard ones so so, yeah I do think it's a bit of a journey coming to accept and um, find your path through it and I I definitely do think it's something that's hard for younger vets you know um
1: I I agree with what you're saying. like in, in emergency euthanasia rates like on average is somewhere between 15 to 20% of the patients we see depending yeah. on the hospital as depending on the hospital we work in and depending on the socioeconomic yeah. area yeah um, and there are shifts i think i was the, the record i've done in one shift was eight euthanasias in one shift
0: wow. yeah and yeah
1: i just felt like doctor death and it, and it's really taken me a while to get used to the whole idea of euthanasia and and it's part of my role it's part of my job it's part of how mm-hmm, i contribute mm-hmm. to society contribute to pets and
0: mm-hmm. the kind of have a
1: process by which i kind of go through where it's like kind of like a formula which I, which i which which sort of settles nicely with me regardless of the euthanasia whether or not it's a healthy pet that you know not a healthy pet but like a pet with mild moderate illness but an owner elects euthanasia or a really sick old one it's kind of really just acknowledging the pet for what they've contributed to the world and and then being there and kind of just being like and thanking them and so kind of like thank you for being there and, and you've contributed and that really helps me because in the process of euthanasia in my head i thank them and and um and it's a part of my role is is that act of service so I, I do struggle. One of the things that I struggle with the most actually is euthanizing pest wildlife species. No. Like the purely no. healthy little rabbit in Australia, you know, in Queensland, rabbits or ferret or where you call it? like um, hares or whatever. You know, they no. come they're so cute. They look like a little Easter bunny <laughs> and then you have, and then no one wants to do it and I have to do it and it kills me. But 10 seconds, no, 10, 20 seconds later, I'm fine. I move on. It's just, it hurts at the time but then it's an act of service. Yeah, it's a comfort
2: thing. It's a... So I think when when I said the the wildlife thing, I don't see that it will bother me because I, I, I still I still feel like well I'm there, mm. I'm cutting short suffering by doing that. If yeah. I wasn't there doing that nasty business, it would be out there dying
1: slowly in the bush or yeah, the same getting in by ants slowly or something like yeah. that.
2: Yeah, so it's uh, I've I've said this to vets before. The reality is none of us are going to be euthanized unless things change really quickly all of us mm-hmm. are going to go through some shit and eventually it's going to end um, so if we could provide comfort and make it shorter mm-hmm. and, and even if it is the ones that you could have potentially saved well if you weren't there as a veterinarian and the owner couldn't come for you come to you to help out mm-hmm. that animal would suffer and die in pain at, at home so whatever the reason it's it's a, it's still a kindness. It took me a while. I mean, I, my, my very first euthanasia, I remember really well. As a student, broken, humerus, no money, and I, mm-hmm. I had to go, I had to go cry out the back, euthanized, mm-hmm. had to excuse myself from the hospital and go outside. And I need to go to the toilet, and then go cry in the toilet a little bit, uh, which is, I laugh now, but it's not. It, it's, it's a big deal.
0: Yeah,
2: it's a, it's a it's yeah, a big deal. but. Um,
0: yeah, that's a, it's it is a big deal. The other like time that I find euthanasia really hard with shelters, like like I, I remember having to go to a pound a few times and euthanize the animals there. And that was that was awful. Like that, mm. you know, I just that was probably the worst because they're healthy, you know, they're just yeah. um, you know there's something wrong with them, and you know that's not right. Yeah, it's it is a tricky part of our job, right? Because yeah it's, it's got a good side to it boy
1: the happy story of wednesday
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> no but this is the stuff that people want to hear too right
0: well the, the funny thing is the most thanks i've received in my career and mm-hmm. i don't think i'm the only emergency mm-hmm. vet who says this it, no, it's actually so many of the euthanasias that you do right yeah. because um maybe because we are good at it as emergency vets because we do it A lot, lot and we can counsel people through it Mm -hmm. i do think it accounts for a lot and it counts like it's a massive massive thing in that person's life when they're taking their pet to somebody to to euthanize them and i think being kind and being patient and help guiding people through it you know i've received more thanks for that than i have any of the Mm -hmm. heroics that i've ever you know uh, done and
2: what a privilege to be trusted with it actually I think this line came from somebody on the podcast where I said what, because I often struggled when you do a good euthanasia, I say good because you know people are thankful. And when they say thank you, what do you say back The the, the reflex is to say it's a pleasure. Well, it's not a pleasure. Um, and I think it was one of our guests who said, and I use that now, I say, all I say is thank you for trusting us to help you through this. So. All right, on that happy note, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, start, let's start wrapping up. Uh, do, do you listen to podcasts, Lorna, podcasts, Lorna?
0: Uh I listen to some. Not, not that I'm not an avid podcast listener, i honest. I'm, I
2: can't believe I've just wasted two hours interviewing somebody who doesn't even know.
0: <laughs> I could have lied, but then, then you probably would have asked me which my favourite ones were, and then I would have been like,
2: ah. Uh, so, Lorna, you're used to teaching students. We get all your students you've ever taught, and they're all starting in their first year at, in veterinary science as young vets, and they, you have a couple of minutes to give them one little bit of advice for their veterinary careers. What is your one bit of advice?
0: I think the most important thing is we've probably like talked about it already, is just not to lose your identity to the profession, you know, to see it as your profession and it can still be your passion and your love and you can still be realizing your dream, but not to completely lose yourself to it, to maintain yourself outside of it, to maintain your relationships outside of it, to not allow it to completely consume your personal life because I I think that is the biggest thing for me I think that's one of the biggest things that can contribute to burnout and people becoming fatigued with the profession and the work and becoming disillusioned so I I think for me that's probably the biggest thing that I would uh, would offer as a piece of advice
2: definitely definitely has to be up there my, my top five things as well Awesome. Lorna, thank you so much. You've been an absolute champion.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was
2: fun. Hopefully, we'll catch up in person sometime. I think think it'll be fun. Yeah,
0: that'll be (laughs) lovely.